Welcome to A Lawyer's Guide to the Galaxy, a podcast about geek culture by lawyers with your hosts, Ben Siders and Kurt Damon. And welcome back to A Lawyer's Guide to the Galaxy, the podcast that asks interesting questions that don't have any answers with your hosts, Ben Siders, that's me, and the other guy is, as always, Kurt Damon. That's Kurt, as in the Captain of the Enterprise. We are intellectual property lawyers and certified geeks practicing law in St. Louis, Missouri. You can find me, Ben, on Twitter, at Benjamin Siders, and you can find Kirk at KirkDMN, and you can follow us at LGGPod, and our website is LGGPodcast.com. It is Public Domain Day. Well, it's, uh, we're going to do Public Domain Podcast. Public yes. Domain Day is technically the first. Yeah, it's, a, it's sort of an oddity of our laws that uh, all copyrights expire on the same day every year, December yeah. 31st. So. Everything that expires during the year expires on the same day. Yeah. Yeah. So if, if you publish something uh, early in the year, you basically get an extra year of term out of it effectively, <laughs> which is kind of weird. But uh, the, the, the fun upshot is that January 1 each year is Public Domain Day. And we've done this for, uh, we did it last year, maybe the year before, I forget. We're making this a new tradition that uh, the first podcast of every uh, calendar year uh, is going to be our Public Domain Day podcast, where we just kind of talk about what new works are entering the public domain. Uh, last year, we got our list from uh, the Duke uh, Law School website. They have a Public Domain Day website that tracks key works, and they do a really nice job of pulling together all the, the really interesting stuff. Yeah, they pull together a good list of the sort of things that are entering the public domain. They have a lot of commentary on it. Um, you know, it's done by their Center for the Study of the Public Domain, so obviously yeah. there's a slight political bent towards the Yeah, there, there, there's, a, there's an interest here. It's not neutral. <laughs> yes. um, but it is, it, it's a very well-done site of just, you know, for basics of information. So if you want to see what has become public domain, it's actually a great place to go into to look at it. Yeah, and we'll, I'll try to remember to put a link to the reference that we're using in the notes for the show. So when you, by the time you get this, you should be able to check the show notes and get the link. But in case I forget, it's web.law.duke.edu uh, slash CSPD slash public domain day slash 2022. Or enter any other year to find any yeah. other year. Or just Google public domain day 2022. <laughs> probably the first link or two. Yeah. Okay, so um, what's the kind of reset? Uh, well, first of all, it's season five now of The Lawyer's Guide to the Galaxy. <laughs> My goodness. Well, I buried the lead, didn't I? <laughs> uh, yeah, hard to believe we've been at this for, uh, for, uh, for that long now. We are uh, going to try and shake things up again this year, not because we really want to so much as we kind of need to. Uh, the pandemic continues to make things challenging. Um, also, Kirk and I, ha- after trying many, many tech setups, we decided that what works the best is to sit in my office and just hit record <laughs> on my phone. Yeah, it's it's amazing. We've used you know, fancy microphones, like each of us using microphones, using a shared microphone, and nothing works as well as the phone. There's, yeah. there's some concern there, I think. But Yeah, the, the quality is remarkable. We don't have good acoustic you know, shielding in here, but um, yeah. we, we've got some things we can do to, to make the sound sound good. So at least it's, it's uh, audible, which is the most important thing. So our goal this year is to try to do, I think we decided our goal was 10. Ideally, 12 episodes like this where we get together and do a traditional episode and we'll fill in in between weeks with rewinds and edamames and other things as as available but uh, we're trying to maintain a reasonable and regular schedule that that we can keep up with uh, so that's kind of our goal so but we've said that before we've said that before and then uh, fate conspires against us often so today public domain day we're going to talk a little bit about why we have this at all uh, and then go through some of the interesting works and the consequences of that. Uh, this year is also particularly notable because this is the first year that all of the old sound recordings that were brought under the ambit of federal law by the Music Modernization Act several years ago are now public domain. Yeah. Uh, some of these things were not going to expire for like another 40 years or so. So um, that that's a, a big change that has finally, at long last, brought sound recordings under the federal copyright law. Um, they were after 1972. They now are. So that's good. Uh, so we're going to cover that as well. 
Yeah, so it's, it is an interesting year, too. There's a couple interesting things. Remember last year, uh, the big thing we were talking about was The Great Gatsby? Yes. Um, that was the, uh, the the work that entered the public domain. There's a few more big works that enter the public domain this year, um, one of which, and I think we're going to talk about it, is the original Winnie the Pooh. Yes, A.A. Um, Milne's Winnie the Pooh, the original publication. Original this is not publication. not the cartoon. This is not uh, House at Pooh Corner. This is just the original. And that one's one we want to talk about because, again, that kind of gets into you know personal interest of mine having to do with sequels and you know continuations of characters and what exactly is Winnie the Pooh. Yeah, you got to remember with copyright, we're normally talking about you know there's this idea expression dichotomy. You can't own or you can't copyright the idea behind something. Yeah. So the concept of the anthropomorphic uh, teddy bear character obviously can be done by other people. We yeah. have we have Teddy Ruxpin, for example. <laughs> Why do we both think of Teddy Ruxpin as the because first one? Because we're children of the 80s. <laughs> uh, so, so, How about uh, the Velveteen Rabbit? Uh, or Care maybe Bears. Colin and Hobbs. Care Bears. Yeah, there, there's, there's this idea is, is not, is not uh, uh, copyrightable, but the particular expression of the idea is. Uh, and then in the era of a visual representation of characters through comic books and things like that, the idea of the character copyright developed to where, you know, once, once I know what the character looks like because it's been uh, drawn or pictured, if somebody else redraws the same character but in a different pose or position or context, they've still infringed the copyright because it's the same character. And then we've gone back and, and reverse engineered that and applied that to textual characters as well. But this has resulted in... As Kirk said, sort of a, a, a passion project of his, this bizarre set of laws about who has the right to use settings. And we sort of base that on the idea of reusing characters, but it's not that hard to just not reuse the characters and recycle the setting. Uh, and what we've seen in the past is that settings are, are really, we think, probably a better uh, a better vehicle for trademarks. Rather, trademark is a better vehicle for protecting it. But even that doesn't really work. Yeah. It's it, you're bumping into, and I think you know you read anything popular culture, you're going to bump into a lot of this. The, this creation of the, you know, the, these large properties, this world with, building, with world building and universes. stuff like that. You know, the Star Wars universe being the one we obviously talk about all the time in conjunction with this, but there's hundreds of these. The Marvel universe, uh, you know, and Star Trek, Star Trek, you know, everything else that we all recognize as being these particular properties moved to something else. But they don't necessarily carry over. They may carry over certain characters, things like that. When it carries over characters, it's, it's actually pretty well-defined yeah. in copyright law than when it doesn't. And again, that's the Particularly thing Particularly visually represented yes. characters where we can tell pretty easily that it's the same thing. But it's also one of the things you bump into in conjunction with it then is when you even do it with characters, what do you have for characters changing over time? And what really is a character when we talk about copyright? Because really, a character, when you think about it, like, is a human being subject to copyright? Well, no, of course not. No. You can't copyright a human being. But that's kind of what we're doing. It's just something that's been created. And then not all characters are protected even then. The character has to be sufficiently delimited to where you can kind of tell. I mean, it's kind of a sloppy test, but basically... Can you tell? Like, if you squint and look, yeah. can you tell that it's really the same thing? Because, you know, the same kind of characters get reused over and over. So the courts try to draw this distinction between stock characters who are sort of generic, you know, props that are part of this story and aren't really individualized versus a character that is truly a defined character. Um, and so we, we do have a test case for this, which is Sherlock Holmes. Especially a couple of them. But <laughs> yeah, some of which, uh, some of the Sherlock Holmes works are public domain, some are not. And the way it's been dealt with is basically whatever representations of the character were in the stuff that's public domain, those aspects of the character are public domain, the others are not. Yeah. So the Sherlock Holmes is a great example, and I can go through a little bit of the detail.
know, basically when, when Sherlock Holmes was written by Sir Arthur Conan Doyle, he wrote a number of the novels uh, and books. He took a, there was a gap, and then he wrote some, some follow-ups. One of the things, and again, I may get this completely wrong, it's been a while since I looked at it, but I get the timing right. One of the last books in the first group was The Hound of the Baskervilles. I'm looking it up now. Um, and the, the issue with it is, is that it's because of The Hound of the Baskervilles that Sherlock Holmes gets a fear of dogs, if I remember correctly, in conjunction with the, the thing with it. So an aspect of his personality changes based upon what occurs in the book. And it's keep in mind that these are serialized books, so they do have an order to them. A lot of them back then were published too, in like like uh, like like pulp fiction magazines and things like that. Yeah, um, and so you you had that kind of stuff, you know, sort of happen, you know, with it as to you know what it is. But again, we have an evolution of the character over time. When they were generating the modern Sherlock a few years ago, um, and the stuff having to do with the discussions of that, one of the questions with it was is which aspects of his personality were they were they using? Because if he had a fear of dogs, they were using the still under copyright Sherlock Holmes. But if he did not have a, sure, a fear of dogs, they were using the not under copyright Sherlock Holmes. And so you kind of look at it and you're like, wait, isn't Sherlock Holmes one person? And the answer yeah. is yes. But because he evolved over time, and in particular because of the fact that we have this very clear aspect of his personality that develops during the gap that we are currently within. You know, we have that, that kind of sort of weird thing of exactly what is it. Well, when we're getting to it, and again, the original Winnie the Pooh is one of the things by A. Milne is one of the books which is expired, whose copyright has expired. Winnie the Pooh is also a character that has continued over time and changed. We are, many of you are familiar with, and I, he just actually popped it up, um, the sort of illustrated Winnie the Poohs, which is in the, there is that, some of that illustration yeah. in the original A. Milne. But the appearance has changed. The appearance has changed, and we're also used to the Disney appearance yes. of Winnie the Pooh. Um, which is also different. For one, it's in color. Yeah. He wears a shirt. <laughs> no, he does wear clothes. Yeah. Um, if, if you look at, you, you can go on the Wikipedia page for the original Winnie the Pooh book, and you can see some illustrations from, um, uh, this one says it's from illustration from chapter 10. Yeah, this is actually 1926, according to your thing? Uh, I believe so, yeah. This is the 1926 original publication. Uh, so it's interesting. The, the illustrations are actually separately copyrightable from the yeah. book itself uh, and owned by a different author, but they too are public domain now. But if you look at this, you'll see it looks like just like a, a pencil drawing. Um, and the characters all generally look the same. Like, I see Owl, I see Rabbit, uh, Eeyore, Piglet. Uh, Piglet. Yeah. They're all there. Uh, if, if you look at it, you'll definitely recognize them. You wouldn't be confused into thinking this is, uh, Rue is there. You wouldn't be confused into thinking it's something else. But it also still doesn't look the same. And later, visual depictions of Winnie Pooh, or Winnie Pooh, Winnie the Pooh, Pooh. or other elements of his characterization or the other characters that um, were first published after 1926 are not public domain, which includes basically everything Disney has done mm -hmm. with it. Although they're getting close, obviously. Yeah, they are getting close. They were done, you know, similar time. And the same thing is going to happen with, with Mickey Mouse. You know, uh, Steamboat Willie, I forget what the date is. I think it's 28, maybe. Yeah, but 28 sounds we're, right. we're coming up on it, and uh, it's going to enter the public domain. But it's just Steamboat Willie. It's just what Mickey Mouse looked like in Steamboat yeah. Willie. Um, I don't even remember if he had... Vocals then they may not have had sound. Uh, no, he has. He, it's he whistles and it's, uh, I think it's just musical sound. If yeah, I remember correctly because it's it's sounded over if I remember correctly in conjunction with it, but it's not. He doesn't speak. It's not synchronized the yeah. same way. So so yeah. So you know we're we're talking about the 1920s era of film. This is still largely the silent film era. Uh, we didn't really have the ability to sync up um, dialogue with film until the later 20s, but we will see that start to approach as well, and we'll see the music industry really, or the music, the film industry, really take off when that happens as well. So the 20s are sort of um, 
one of the early golden eras of, of Americana as far as film, music. There's a lot happening in this time period. Yep. And we're going to see a lot of things that you know that you read about in third grade social <laughs> studies and never thought about since entering the public domain. We have the Roaring Twenties. I mean, the that's what we're 20s, talking yeah. about at this point in time. You know, is, you know we're headed into... Then you are going to have all the like Depression that. era works after that. Yep. And then we get into World War II and kind of the modern post-war era. So there's going to be over the next couple of decades just an enormous amount of highly influential work. But this is really... We're kind of in the middle of it now, but it's, we're going to see more and more of this kind of stuff. Coming. Yeah, and also because, and Ben mentioned it earlier, because of changes in the copyright law, we're also seeing certain things get sort of pulled into this just because of where copyright law is extended and things yep. along those lines, and that's uh, there as well. So, so here's another one. The original publication of Bambi, yeah. the book, the book. Uh, not the Disney film, but the book, uh, is in the public domain. Ernest Hemingway's first novel, The Sun Also Rises. Which I which, have to admit, I read in high school and hated. See, I actually kind of liked it. I read it. I didn't, I didn't get it. Okay? <laughs> I didn't get it either. If, I if you've it. never read it, this is the Lost Generation novel, right? Because Hemingway was in World War One, and this was like the first novel about that generation of veterans and how they were kind of forgotten and overlooked. Because we went from World War One into the Spanish flu pandemic and then uh, the Roaring Twenties. Everybody just kind of forgot about yeah. all these veterans that came home from this, this awful, awful war, right? With the, but I think it was also because warfare. in many respects, Americans were not involved in World War I. Not the same way, yeah. The same way we later on with World War II, and we had been in prior wars. You know, most of the, many of the Americans who fought did not fight in American units to start yeah. off with. They fought with French units and, and stuff like that. Um, yeah, it's it was it was a book that, again, I sort of got, but I think that the thing I bumped into with Sun Also Rises, it is unquestionably a book that's a product of its time. Yeah. And reading it you know, at that point in time, 80 years later, it's hard to understand what he's talking about. And Hemingway is an acquired taste. You, if you don't, if you, <laughs> you don't like his style of yeah, prose... Yeah, that's, that's the other thing. I don't particularly like Hemingway yeah. generally. I've his, read his other books, and I don't particularly like Hemingway generally. Almost everybody reads The Old Man and the Sea, yeah. which which I think it's, what, 70 pages? It's not a long... It's a yeah. short story, really. I'm more of a novella. Uh, that is kind of hard to get through because of how he writes. I, I actually kind of like Hemingway, and I, I remember um, in, enjoying reading The Sun Also Rises, but I was reading a bunch of Hemingway at the time it's to me it's kind of like taking an accounting class you've got to be mentally prepared to think that way <laughs> and if you aren't it's going to be a frustrating experience we will also mention the fact that Ben started off as an English major yes. which I did not <laughs> so you know there's also some clear you know desire to uh, to read great literature here that's somewhat different between the two of us I also took a class one of my English uh, degree requirements was to take a class that focuses on one specific decade of literature and I did the 20s so I've okay. read a whole bunch of this stuff speaking of which Langston Hughes, The Weary Blues. Uh, uh -huh. Hughes was a, uh, a famous poet, part of the Harlem Renaissance, which is also happening at this time. So we're going to have a lot of important influential works by African-American artists uh, entering the public domain here. And Langston Hughes, The Weary Blues is part of that. We also have Dorothy Parker, The Algonquin Roundtable. Um, <laughs> some of that stuff is starting to enter the public domain. Um, enough rope. I'm not familiar with that one. Um, I don't know who Dorothy Parker is, but um, I, I don't think I've actually read anything that she wrote. She was famous. If you don't know who that is, she was famous um, as being sort of a, not like a comedy writer, but a, a, a wit, you know, a, um, a sarcastic sort of comedian of the, wit, of the time. Witty is a good way to put it, yeah, I think. Is yeah. the... That's usually the word they use to describe yeah. her. But like, I think it's a term of the era was she, she's a wit. And it was her and um, three other people I can't remember now who they were. I think one of the Marx Brothers... Um, was part of that, the Algonquin Roundtable. So okay. um, if you don't know what that is, go look it up. It's uh, one of those things that you should know, especially if you ever watch Jeopardy. Um, <laughs> <laughs> and we have silent films like Harold Lloyd, Buster Keaton, and Greta Garbo. Some Greta yeah. Garbo work. I, mean, I think those. the only things you really get into is also, you know, interesting sort of, you know, films in conjunction with this. Buster Keaton in particular being, you know, Buster Keaton is one that 
you know, for those of you who, you know, are probably older than we are, or sorry, younger than we are listening to this podcast, you may never have encountered Buster Keaton because he was kind of, I think, on the way out when we were young enough to actually pay attention to him. But, I mean, I encountered him when I took film studies class. You really study Buster Keaton because he he really kind of revolutionized what he did in the science film, the silent film. He's also interesting because he could never really adapt to not being silent. Mm-hmm. He he was a brilliant silent film actor, but he really couldn't not do silent. Yeah. Um, and so it's it's a really kind of you know intriguing thing that you bump into with him and stuff like that. Um, and again, very influential. You know, f- films that I think if you were to talk to a modern director today, you will probably have no trouble finding the people who were influenced by him. Yep. Uh, we've got some Agatha Christie. Uh, here's a good one. T.E. Lawrence, The Seven Pillars of Wisdom. This was the text from which Lawrence of Arabia would later become a, a uh, I believe, an Academy Massive Award winning film. film. Yeah. Uh, we have the first William Faulkner novel, Soldier's Pay. Which I've I never read that one. Really yeah. Know, yeah. Um, Willa Cather, More Harlem Renaissance, uh, My Mortal Enemy. I've not read that one. I read a different book of hers, and I forget which one it is now. Um, D.H. Lawrence, The Plumed Serpent, and H.L. Mencken, Notes on Democracy. So we have yeah. some nonfiction as well that's... Yeah. Uh, Coming in here, Mencken, uh, Mencken is one of my has one of my all time favorite quotes from this time period, which I'm going to butcher, but it's basically a quote warning people about the dangers of paying too much attention to uh, politicians in the media <laughs> who have a vested interest in keeping you afraid all the time about everything, which um, <laughs> should, should resonate with some people now. So, um, so yeah, there's a, there's a lot a lot going on in here. There's even more on this list that I haven't even mentioned. So that's books. Let's talk sound recordings. Now we have to stop here and do our usual caveat. Sound recordings are different from songs. <laughs> um, songs have been governed by the Copyright Act since the 1830s, but sound recordings have not because we had no way to record sounds until uh, the late 19th century, and really no commercially viable way to do that uh, until the early 20th century. So sound recordings were really not covered in any meaningful way by the Copyright Act at a federal level until the 1970s. Um, and uh, even then, it was only for new stuff after that. So everything before 1972 was governed by a, a real hodgepodge of state laws, uh, and it was that way until basically five years ago when they finally passed a federal law that says, you know what, this is a disaster. <laughs> this is a mess. <laughs> we, we're tired of people having to fight over uh, orphan works under Florida state copyright law, which I mean, Kirk and I are just like, Ugh, is, that sounds terrible. <laughs> Gives me the heebie-jeebies. Yeah. So... Um, so yeah, so it's all it's all federal now, and the first set of works that have now been uh, preempted by the federal copyright statute are entering the public domain this year. Uh, experts estimate four hundred thousand sound recordings are now public domain. Yeah, I mean, and and it's mentioned on the Duke side. I think it's worth noting with this the the true enormity of this is the availability of this many sound recordings now for sampling in modern music. Yes. And it's one of these things where, you know, that's, that's been a huge issue in the law recently has been sampling in music, you know, use of prior recordings in music, you know, both directly where they truly yeah. are sampling or truly using it or where it's assumed based upon similarity, stuff like that. You know, this potentially bodes well yes. for the future of modern music. We may see a, a resurgence of certain styles of modern music. Which now is much easier. Yes. Uh, because you don't require permission to use these things. I think it will be very interesting to see what, what happens yeah. with this. And do we see that or not? S- sampling presents strange problems because the, the idea of using sampling in music really came out of the, the early DJ scene where you would sample music yeah. live and mix things together. But 
That doesn't present any real legal problems with the sound recording because there is no copy copyright right to public performance of a sound recording live. Yeah. I can just play anything. I've got to cover the composition, which you can get through your ASCAP, BMI, right, PRO yeah. licenses, but I don't have to get any permission for the sound recording when I'm live. That changes, though, once I record it and distribute. Now there is a yep. right. And then likewise with digital transmissions, we've got this weird bifurcation between basically Spotify and Pandora. <laughs> yeah, and I'll tell you, it's one of the things that we talk about this sort of thing and talk about the idea of the DJ Live. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to give a plug here. Um, if you get near Nashville, go to the Museum of African American Music. Um, it is an utterly amazing museum. We went a few months ago. Uh, it's what it is. I learned more about the history of music than I think I have anywhere else. Uh, it's a well-done museum. It's very fascinating. I Even going through this list of songs, we went through it, like suddenly I recognized names as being influential yeah. that I had never heard of before going to that museum. Or, you've, um, or your names you've seen before, but now you really understand how important they were. You understand how effective they were. Um, and, you know, even as I played piano and I played sort of, you know, ragtime and jazz piano uh, when I was learning and stuff like that. And I did, you know, I used techniques that I now understand where they came from. Yeah. Um, and so, yeah, it's, I'm going to plug it as to what it is. It's an utterly brilliant museum. It's incredibly well done. Um, and as, as a place to learn things, um, you know, unless you're probably a music scholar, I suspect you will learn an enormous amount there. It's also very interactive. And like one of the ones that it's, I joke about, it, one of the great things that you do is you, you mix a, your own song. As a sound engineer, you mm -hmm. get to put together your own song in one awesome. of these things. Where it gives you, like, pick one of the following three, you know, drum beats, pick one of the following three, like, bass sound beats, how do you want to do the vocals, and it gives you, like, different options how to do the vocals, and then it tells you, in the end, what style of music you created. And it's like, okay, That's cool. so I, I created New Jack Funk, that was what I created. I didn't even know there was a style called New Jack Funk. Sorry, well, there's for all these subclades really of yeah. jazz and blues, and it's interesting because I'm learning to play the guitar, or rather refining my ability, and when you're learning to, to solo on the guitar, the, 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 the way to cheat is to just memorize a pentatonic scale. Okay? <laughs> it's, it's a, the pentatonic minor blues scale is a five-note scale, and since there's very rarely any true key signature changes in a modern rock song, if you just know how you know the, the finger positionings for the notes in that scale on the fretboard, you can just play any note, and it's going to sound at worst okay. Yeah. You're not going to have a jarring like you know like a like a like a flat six that doesn't make any sense. So uh, the pentatonic scale is a simplified blues scale. But, you know, basically all rock music is just written in the blues scales. Yeah. And the blues scales all come from jazz. The jazz all <laughs> comes from, like, uh, like, like early uh, spirituals, which are all uh, come from, like, uh, freed slaves. Yeah. So all, all of this stuff all comes back to the same place. It's the African-American community has invented yeah. basically all of modern music. <laughs> and it's quite frankly, when you go to the museum, you really do learn that. And it's very, it's very bluntly obvious of, like, how much of the, the music, you know, we have to owe to, you know, and not even just freed slaves, but, you know, like Africa generally, like pre-slavery. Um, yeah. So, yeah, there's a lot of, it was a fascinating thing to go, it was a fascinating thing to go to. Um, but again, it taught me a lot about what, you know, I learned in the music. And again, like even looking through the thing in Public Domain Day, because we're talking about timing as to what this is, you know, looking through this list, there were suddenly like artists, and I'm just trying to see if I can see some of the ones Manny that I saw Smith. the first time. Yeah, that, you know, I bumped into that. I even recognized the song or I, I recognized the, um, um, you know, the person for whatever, Ethel Waters, actually. Yeah, Ethel Waters, yeah. So we took her another one, like, mm -hmm. you know, um, and so it was those kind of things where it was a, you know, it was really, it was really valuable to sort of see. So that's kind of a diversion, you know, in conjunction with it. But I think the real thing we've got here with this is this is our first true watershed, I think, oh, of huge, recording yeah. music that's really entering the public domain. And it's not just jazz clearly. and blues. It's, yeah. it's the big band era, too, is going yeah. on, which overlaps to some extent. So I'm looking at some names here. There's works by... 
uh, Irving Berlin, we've got showing up. Uh, yeah. The Gershwins. Um, yeah, n- names that you yeah. read in like your Su- music. Susan Star Spangled Banner. Yeah. Like, think about that for a second. Susa, as in the Susa phone. The, the Sousa guy phone. that invented yeah. the Susa phone. <laughs> so, yeah, there's a lot of. And then these recordings, some of the stuff was written, you know, 100 years before, but the recordings, the recorded yeah. performances are now public domain. But this is a trap, okay? <laughs> this is a trap because. It is the original recording that is public domain. It is not the remastered version you can buy on a CD <laughs> or download from the Apple Store necessarily. Yeah. So you have to be careful with what is uh, public domain versus not. The original recording is the cleaned up remastered stuff may still be under a separate copyright owned by somebody else. Yep. Um, yes, and, and that is the thing with this is it's one of the things you bump into is that Swing the version you chariot. may have, yeah, the version you may have may not actually be the original version. You know, there's a lot of remastering that goes on with it. Um, this is true of, of music. It's true of movies. It's true of TV. There's a lot of changes that are made when you buy it in new formats and things like that. You know, I mean, you can get online. I happened to have noticed one this morning. They were talking about changes in between DVDs and, you know, original theatrical releases of movies. Yeah. And the use of color, you know, color modifications, color, what's called, was called color correction, as they said, nobody wants to call it correction anymore. Yeah. Um, but, you know, the, the movie you see on a DVD and the movie you saw in a theater have a good chance that they aren't the same. Even if they didn't change the actual movie. It looks they different. They just changed the look. Um, and stuff like that. So, yeah, so much stuff that has sort of, you know, like come through. Is what it, so if you're thinking about sampling, you've got to be careful of the idea of you can't necessarily use the CD you have. At the same time, you, know, you need to actually try to find an original recording. At the same time, depending on where those original recordings are potentially available, um, I have the feeling we're going to see, you know, if they're, if they're available and somebody can get a hands-on them, they're going to enter the public domain in a broad way. You know, yeah. the things are going to pop out. Speaking of music, the underlying compositions, we have some entering the public domain as well. Uh, Bye Bye Blackbird. We've got Gentlemen Prefer Blondes by Erling Irving Berlin. Uh, Someone to Watch Over Me by the, the Gershwins. We've got Are You Lonesome Tonight? Yeah. Um, I, I didn't realize that this was that old. Uh, Red Red Robin, which I think everybody who played recorder in grade school <laughs> learned at some point. Yeah. Uh, and then this one I'm curious about, uh, the, the Cossack Love Song? Otto Harbach, Oscar Hammerstein, George Gershwin, and Herbert Stothart. Um, that seems like a song I would probably recognize if I heard it, given who yeah, wrote it. Yeah, I think it. that's, it's, you know, I think that maybe the one that's popping up sort of the thing is one of the musicals. It's not a well-known musical. Yeah. But, um, the one that I'll mention on there, just because I happen to see it, The Black Bottom Stomp, which is one of those that I now know what yes. it is, thanks to that museum. <laughs> yeah, that's <laughs> a Ferd Morton, who I've never heard of. So. It's Charlie Roll Morton. Yeah. Um, you know, it's, you know, it is. So yeah, those kind of things with it. Um, they talk in the movies. I don't think we're seeing as much currently. Yeah, there, there's some things. Um, there's not a lot in here. We've got uh, a Buster Keaton movie, Battling yep. Butler. Battling Butler, which is actually one I've seen. Uh, the Temptress with Greta Garbo. We've got something called Moana, a docufiction filmed in Samoa. Uh, <laughs> Faust. You can probably guess what that is. Yep. German expressionalism. Uh, that's a. Uh, if you're, uh, if you're having a really wonderful week, go watch Faust. It'll <laughs> <Yeah. laughs> change that. I think the one they mentioned here, and it's important for what they say about it, is that Don Juan, the first feature-length film to use a Vitaphone sound system. Yes. Um, you know, that's an important one to just sort of keep in mind technically, you know, because we, we now have sort of the ability to use that technically. Um, the other thing with it is, and it's mentioned in here, this Samo- um, uh, Moana um, is a docu-fiction who's famous for 1922 film, which is obviously approaching Anandok of the North, mm-hmm. which is a product of its time. Uh, yes. You know, it's one of those things to be aware of, but is actually an extremely, if, you, if you're willing to treat it as a product of its time, a very interesting movie. Yeah. Um, it, both from what it tells you, but also how it presents it and the way it was presented in 1922. Yeah. Faust is also interesting because, of course, it's, it's Goethe, but uh, the, the play itself is already public domain. 
Uh, but then that with a film based on it is public domain. Yep. And as we're going to see with The Great Gatsby, as we discussed last year, The Great Gatsby book is public domain, but the various film adaptations are not. And this kind of gets us to uh, the editorial portion of the Duke website about why the long copyright term um, is, is causing some problems. And one of those problems is that um, as we as these older works are passing in the public domain, yeah, we have the right to use them now, but some of them are lost. They're lost to history because the original copies have not been maintained. Uh, we have orphan works where we can't even yep. tell who owns the copyright. We don't know if the copyright was renewed or not because the records aren't very good. And one of the films that, according to the website, has been lost was the original release of The Great Gatsby uh, as a film, which uh, has disintegrated and nobody has a copy of it anymore that we know yeah. of. And I think this is one of those where we're really going to see more of this in conjunction with films, where you know we're, we're the very early era of the motion picture film industry at yep. this stage still. We don't have we didn't have the technology to maintain this. We didn't understand the. I mean, these were bad things, you know. With it, there, the technology just simply didn't have longevity. You know, with modern digital stuff, we have it. You know, we can't maintain. You know, even there has problems of you know platforms and everything else. Um, but the the concern with this long copyright is these are things which are in the public domain but literally no longer exist. Yeah, and you know, well, probably the vast majority literally don't exist, or if they do exist. They have no commercial value whatsoever. They point out here the sun also rises. It's an important novel. How many copies are stocked at your local bookstore? How many? Yeah. Unless people are buying it for academic purposes, nobody's just picking up the sun also rises anymore just to read it for the fun of it. Yeah, it's a book that's in a library. Is yeah. it? It's really the best way to describe yeah. it. You're not, you're not that's a Library of Congress work yeah. for sure. Um, and it, and it is, I think, an important you know aspect of the, what we're getting into with the public domain and the reason for works entering public domain. Works that enter the public domain in many respects are preserved. Um, just use as an example because it's one that, you know, is, is an example of a mistake made in copyright renewal. Yep. The works of H.P. Lovecraft, which should be under copyright but are not because of mistakes that were made, you know, underneath it, are available everywhere mm -hmm. because they've been preserved by public domain. I mean, you can download them to, you know, book readers generally for free or for very inexpensive by people who've preserved them as fan copies. You know, I think that that's led to some resurgence and interest in him. I mean, he's an incredibly influential author mm -hmm. that people don't know that much about unless you happen to be particularly into yeah. horror fiction because of his just relationship to it. Um, and particularly sort of existential horror fiction. Um, but it's, it's one of those things where, you know, you kind of worry about some of these old movies. Uh, if these things wouldn't have entered the public domain, let's say, 50 years ago... Would they have been preserved as to what it is? The other concern with it is, is that some of these are, again, original talks, we talk about things with it. There's obviously commercial incentives to maintain commercial rights in these. Somebody who may own the only copy of a public domain work to not release it because that keeps it out of the public domain to maintain a copyright in a later work. Um, of you know similar value again sort of taking it as if you own the great Gatsby's original movie if you also have a later movie who's still under copyright do you want to release the original film because yeah. you want to keep the later under copyright and people buying it and that's one of the points they make here the, this website says the fact that works from 1926 are legally available does not mean they are actually available yes. it's been 95 years a lot of these works have already been lost or are literally disintegrating. Uh, evidence of what exactly the copyright was might be gone. So I guess for all practical purposes, you can't prove anybody infringed it. 
Um, and they even mentioned one of the films they considered featuring was the Great Gatsby film, an adaptation of the novel that entered the public domain last year. But the film's gone. Nobody has a copy of it anymore. So um, they also point out what, what Kurt just said. You know, we also don't know what, what is out there that is, is really already public domain for failure to comply with statutory formalities that existed at the time about renewal and registration, things you don't have to do anymore. If someone didn't follow that, then yeah. the work would... would you know, the copyright would have expired decades yeah. ago, but we just don't know. Well, I think this also gets into one of those things where anybody who's interested in collecting, and I'll you know talk about it from the, I don't know if you guys know it, if I mentioned it on the show before, but I've, I've since sold off my collection, but for a number of years, I collected the Transformers toys, the original ones from the 1980s. I amassed a fairly substantial, um, and in some respects, historically significant collection, um, which, you know, I did sell off. I decided I, I, I was no longer displaying it it was a large collection, and it was something where, in, in my mind, it belonged in collectors who cared for it more than I did at that point in time. They were in, I had them stored in boxes. I maintained certain pieces of the collection that were important to me, um, certain ones that were also, you know, certain historical significance that I can individually point out the historical significance of because I know their history, um, you know, which are, are pieces that, in, in some respects, belong in a museum but are not old enough to yet be there. Yeah. Um, but it's one of those things where, one of the things that's always fascinating, and these are toys from the 80s, you know, there were oftentimes things that were discovered where the stories are unknown. And it would take, you know, multiple collectors months, if not years, to actually be able to amass the history of what these things were. And I was involved in a couple of those, you know, uh, of pieces that, you know, I, the, the, there's one in particular that I, I know of, I was one of the first people to actually get a complete copy of. Um, you know, they knew it existed, but they didn't know what, exactly what it looked like. Um, and so, you know, you get those kind of things with it. When you talk about these kind of works and originals like this, th you know, this is 80 years older than those, mm -hmm. you know, 70 years older than those. You have damage, you have physical destruction. I've been involved in conjunction as well with, um, you know, just found things. You know, I've worked with a, a company that found, you know, photos that are more than 100 years old. They're just in storage that, from what we can work out, have never been published. You know, these are, you know, they're they're fascinating, they're interesting as to what it is. They are historical significance. So Kirk isn't giving any details of what these are. I think he and I have talked about this before. Yeah. If they're the ones I'm thinking of, these are photos of potentially very high historical significance. Yeah. Uh, and, um, and, and you know, we have something that's that old and it's a photograph. Just trying to figure What's out... What's a negative, actually? A, yeah, well, who took the picture? Like, who's the author? Do you, do you even know? And this is an, an, an ongoing problem we have, and they're dealing with this with music. Part of the Music Modernization Act was when we have orphan works where we can't figure out who it is, uh, basically you, the person who wants to use the work pays a statutory royalty into a trust held by the copyright office, and we publish that we're doing it. And if nobody steps forth to claim the work, there's just sort of going to be a de facto public domain work, and you get your money back, and that's that. Yeah, or, after a certain period of time. Yeah, or if an author steps forward and says, no, no, that's mine, and then, then you investigate it, figure it out, and then they get the royalty, and you can kind of go from there. But that, that strikes me as a good way to resolve some of these things, and perhaps something that should be looked at for copyright reform, rather than continuing to extend term. Because if you look at the website, you'll see the vast majority of copyrightable works don't really have any commercial value 50 years later, certainly not yeah. 75 years later, it's maybe a couple percent. But I, I suspect that the reason we keep changing the term and, and removing formal requirements like um, notices, like renewals, is because there have been a couple of cases where commercially valuable works Somebody makes a mistake, and the rights it's are lost. It's a wonderful life. It's a wonderful you life. You go no further just, than that. Just go look up <laughs> the tormented legal history of, of, of that. 
Um, you know, you, you do get sometimes somebody misses something, and so we've redone the entire copyright regime to avoid those kind of mistakes. The other problem I think we bump into, quite frankly, is that also the copyright regime, in many respects, is written around the 2% of works that it are is, valuable. It's, it's meant to later. protect those works. And, you know, and remember, the, the reason we have copyright is to encourage people to make these works in the first place. But I think there's a pretty compelling argument that when the copyright term is life of the author plus 70 years, are you saying you wouldn't have written it if it was only life of the author, author plus 50 or plus 20? You know, the reason we originally extended these terms is that the works entered the public domain before the author died. And so yeah. people were dying penniless even though they had hits. And we're like, yeah. it's just not fair. Well, and again, I think we mentioned that in conjunction with The Great Gatsby. You know, I mean, that, that was an, a, a book that only really became famous after the author's death. Um, there's a lot of those things that are out there, you know, the, the creation of works. You know, there's a lot of philosophical problems that yeah. sort of surround copyright, more so in many respects than patent and trademark, because in some sense... Patent and trademark feel more commercial than copyright does. We kind of look at copyright and be like, it's art. People create art for art's sake. Yeah. Um, you know, that's a, it's a common phrase, you know, you hear it in, around it. But yet we're not necessarily, we want people to be able to capitalize art. We want people to be able to create art commercially and to be able to do it. But we don't necessarily know how to commercialize it in a way which is, is reasonable. And again, uh, I know Ben and I both listen to you know, a number of podcasts. Uh, for those of you who, who listen to it, you know, Freakonomics did a, a large discussion on the art market. Yeah. And discussions of the, you know, the, the, the literal physical art market, you have an incentive right now that huge percentages of great art is in warehouses not being viewed to preserve it. Also, if you're interested in art, uh, Econ Talk did a great episode on art theft insurance and how that industry yeah. works and the art registries. Yeah, and, and the idea of what is art, you know, do we should we be taking masterworks, putting them in crates and storing them in environmentally protected locations as opposed to viewing them? Yeah. You know, aren't they intended to be viewed? Aren't they masterworks because they're something that should be viewed? Like the Mona Lisa. I mean, they got to go in and clean it up every once in a while because it gets dusty. Yeah. You know? <laughs> and, and things like that. And, and I think it's, it's, it's a bigger question than what we're getting into here. But copyright intersects that because what we're really getting into in conjunction with a lot of these copyright questions is are we discouraging creation of future works yeah. by trying to protect prior works that are valuable. And that's it, it's a real philosophical question because you look at it and say you need protection to encourage future works, but you also need the protection to expire to encourage future works. Yeah, because then you can't build upon what's come before. And they, they I, I don't 100% agree with this, but I, I get the point that the way that the copyright term works, everything that defines the, the zeitgeist of a generation is, is going to, we're all going to die before any of it enters the public domain, before anything we grew up with is, is public domain and can be built upon and adapted upon without permission from the author, we'll all be dead, you know, 50 years before <laughs> that happens. So it's kind of a, a morbid thought, but that, that's what we're dealing with here. And I also think there's a tendency to mis, misattribute why this happens. Everybody kind of assumes that Disney's at the bottom of all of this. You see these charts about how whenever the, the Mickey Mouse copyright's about to expire in Steamboat Willie, it changes. But as we've discussed, it's just because Mickey Mouse happens to be in the 20s along with a hundred percent, you know, of everything else that defines, you know, yeah. modern Americana. It's Especially all, the motion picture industry. Yeah, it's, it's all this era, right? And, and and if you look at it, what's the commercial value of Steamboat Willie right now? How much is Disney making off of that? Nothing, yeah. right? It has no value at all. Well, they're probably making something off of it because there probably is a few distributions. Oh, but probably, right? Like, but is, <laughs> what percentage of Disney's billion-dollar empire is, is selling copies of Steamboat Willie? Right? And I'm pretty it's, sure you can watch it on Disney+, Plus, and I'm pretty sure people will subscribe to Disney+, Plus not to get Steamboat Willie. Yeah, yeah. So it's it's not, you know, the commercial value is negligible. It's not that. I think it's other types of works that have more enduring appeal. Films, 
you know, films, books uh, generally don't have that. They tend to have a relatively short lifespan. I mean, look at The Godfather. Everybody watches The Godfather at some point, right? Because it's a famous film, one of the greatest yeah. films of all time. Uh, but, I mean, it's not in theaters. Uh, you know, people might be buying DVDs of it. Maybe not now with streaming. Uh, you know, books the same way we just talked about. The Sun Also Rises, these Faulkner books. These were all important works at the time. They largely have only academic interests now. Uh, a lot of film is the same way. But I think one area where uh, works endure a lot longer is music. Is music. And, and it is interesting that we sort of, you know, we, we, we again, we just sort of blame Mickey Mouse. But I think part of the thing with it is, is it's, Mickey Mouse is, is, one aspect of it, there were many things that were changing. Yeah. Again, it's the Roaring Twenties. That's what yeah. we're talking about here. Anecdotally, we have been told that Disney didn't really care about copyright extension and had to kind of be dragged kicking and screaming into the, <laughs> the last round of it because they were sort of the last holdout to get on board. Yeah. Uh, it was driven by music industry. Uh, we think it was the Gershwins, maybe, their heirs, who were like, look... There, the 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 music that was written is still worth a fortune, uh, and if these it's things expire, performed. it's still performed. You know, yeah, orchestras perform it. It's used in film. It's used in stage performances. So, I think music is is really really unique in a lot of ways amongst our types of IP. And one of those reasons is that it is so timeless. You still go to see symphonies of things that have been public domain for centuries. Yeah. Yeah, and that's it, it is interesting that it is music and sort of and again I think there's a lot to be said for it being music and in particular the the modern era and I would sort of put let's say post eighties is sort of the best way to nineteen eighties is the best way to describe it. There were so many changes around music relating to use of music from the yeah. past that didn't exist before then. The, the the music from the past was presented in its original format. Again, you can go and you can see, you know. A, you know, a symphony presentation of you know, Beethoven's Fifth Symphony, yes, it's going to be different because by definition it's hard to perform the exact same thing twice, yeah. but the presentation by the London Philharmonic of Beethoven's Fifth Symphony today is not going to be that much different from what it was 50 years ago, 100 years ago. You start getting beyond that, you change instruments yeah. and you start seeing some differences there, you know, technology type of stuff. Well, just what it, instruments you use. You yeah. know, what's in an orchestra now is not the same as it was 200 years ago. We just yeah. talked about they didn't have a sousaphone there. Yeah. <laughs> but, you know, it's those kind of things that you get into. Is, is And you also have weird things in technology as well. Like one of the ones that I think you bump into, and, and people, it's, again, if you get into sort of music history and you you get into it, any music museum, the electric guitar. The purpose of the electric guitar is so that it was loud enough to be heard. Yeah. That was the advantage. Of it. One of the ones that I thought was fascinating, again, from the, Amer the American um, uh, Museum of African American History is the reason that ragtime, you create the sound of taking the top off the piano, was because it made it louder. Yeah, make it loud enough. That was the whole reason they did it, but it changed the sound because of in the order of doing it. So we think about this this very important part of ragtime music. It was actually a technical innovation which altered the sound and created a sound which was ragtime music. You have to think we didn't really have uh, like like broad scale big big venue. Um, technology for music until relatively recently. Yeah. Famously, the Beatles' last concert at, at Candlestick, they had 150-watt amplifiers for okay. a baseball park. Nobody <laughs> could hear anything. They had to literally just put a microphone up next to the amps and put it through the PA system. It famously sounded terrible. Uh, I don't think any recordings of it have, have survived, or the ones that I have, you can't hear anything because it's it's so bad. That's the 1960s. You know, it's not that long ago. Yeah, and, and that's, again, I think what we're really getting into is, and we're getting, surprisingly enough, off public domain name, we're talking a little bit about existentially about copy copyright and things like that. Well, it, it plays into all this. This yeah. is one of the reasons Public Domain Day is so interesting is it's a chance to talk about these issues. And it is, and it's it's important because 
and I think anybody who's an IP law attorney understands that IP laws have to turn IP rights have to terminate. Yeah. You know, it, anybody who even if you copyright work especially in, yeah. as the Constitution says for limited time. Uh, yeah, and patents being the other one. Yeah. You know, but I think it's one of those where when when you look at it, anybody who understands the value of IP law also understands that the rights granted to it have to terminate. They can't be perpetual rights because you do have to have future creation. And so it's one of those things where, you know, what you really get recently is the fact that these things have changed because technology has altered the way we both listen to music, um, talk about music, and, and make music. And that making of music, understanding of it, we have music now which physically could not have been created 100 years ago. You know, techno was impossible yeah. 100 years ago. Like, literally, the technology does not exist to do it. Sampling was impossible 100 years ago, you know, in many respects, because we couldn't record from a recording the way we can today. Yes, you probably could do it, but... The analog hole always there, but it's going to sound terrible. Yeah. And those recordings already sound terrible. Yeah, and that's, you know, those kind of things. Are, and so it's, it's really interesting when you get into those kind of questions. And again, that plays into the idea of public domain day. It plays into the concept of what does it mean for IP law rights to expire and how do we deal with that around this? And that's part of the reason we do is this podcast. We celebrate Public Domain Day, even though we're with IP lawyers and we spend yeah. our days focusing on getting. We're generally rights. interested in good, robust IP law protections, but there are very reasonable arguments that copyrights last too too long to the point that they're causing problems. And one area that that I worry about this with is the original Star Wars film. Um, <laughs> if you ever watch when they did the the re-release in the late '90s uh, on the on the uh, the, uh, the tapes, but. Uh, on the DVDs even, they talk about when they got the original footage out of storage to work on it, it was in bad shape. And if they hadn't done it then, they might have never been able to do it. So they were able yeah. to restore it, fix the color, uh, do a lot of that kind of stuff. But I, I don't know if they actually have just a restored and saved copy of the original version and not the version with all of the additional scenes and changes. Uh, and then every time they release a new one, it's different again. So, you know, you know that, that movie is not going to be in the public domain for a long time, probably long after we're, you know, six feet under. Uh, <laughs> but is, is it going to be lost the same way that The Great Gatsby is if it's not being preserved by Lucasfilm? Yeah, well, and in particular, I think with Star Wars and with some modern films with this, you also have the idea of the wanting to improve the film. And it's something that actually, and again, I haven't been reading an article on this this morning uh, on Vox. It was very interesting about... Why does film look the same? Why is it all this washed out film? And one of the things that he proposes in conjunction with that is it's a better way to hide the effect, the digital effects yeah. um, that they, you know, that they do that. Which, if you watch the special editions of Star Wars, the modern DVDs, you can see the blocks around the TIE Fighters. Yeah, they're still there. Because in the original analog film, you couldn't see it because the reproduction it was wasn't blurry, good yeah. enough. Yeah, uh, they were blurry and and things like that. and so it's you bump into this thing where it's the you should be able to watch what it was originally, be able to say, here's what the analog, here's what it actually looked like, recognizing the color is not the color you're used to. The things are not what you're used to today. Um, but you kind of want to see that. And it's that, in, particularly in Star Wars, anybody who's aware of it, the large box set, it has a, a half picture of Vader's face on it, the three tapes are the same, yep. is the last release and the only widescreen release Still, yeah. of the theatrical releases of the movies. I got it sitting on my shelf at home yeah. behind my desk. <laughs> and it sells on eBay for hundreds of dollars. Yeah. Because people want that version, you know, of what it is. And it's the, it's the only one that really exists of exactly well, the theatrical version. That raises another issue is in the era of television, we're going to see also multiple copyrights. The theatrical release and then the pan and scan version that's actually put yeah. on TV and edited down. So you'll have, 
you know, multiple versions of that as well. So the, the lesson from a lot of this is simply that just because a work in the abstract has entered the public domain, that doesn't mean yeah. any given copy of it that you find has. And the real danger, I think you also have this now, and this is where, you know, as I'm looking far, far, far forward into the future, and, you know, I will not be around, but the discussions that are being had, let's say, 100 or 150 years into the future is potentially, well, the streaming version that streamed this year is no longer there because the director redid it and it was simply removed. Yeah. And no longer exists. So yes, you can get access to that movie, but the movie you're seeing was actually only created two or three years ago, even though the original is 100 years old. Um, and what does that mean? You know, you've now got an incentive potentially for a, a director to perpetually tinker with a film and then a studio that owns the copyrights after the director to perpetually tinker with a film so that it never enters the public domain. Yeah. Even though its original form does, its original form literally is purposefully destroyed. Yeah. Yeah. And that, that's something I, I think there's a tendency amongst creative types to tinker in, in endlessly anyway. Yes. It's sort of uh, an engineer's wrong with that. That's yeah. Yeah. That, that's, that's fine. I, I, you know, you and I both are, are writers of a sort and I've got stuff that, that, I, I can't, you're never happy, right? There's, it always could be just a little bit better, a word choice here or there. Um, but yeah, if somebody wanted to be particularly nefarious and uh, malicious, you could deliberately manipulate the way that this works to make it extremely difficult, vexing, and or at least expensive to figure out what parts of a work are public domain and what's not to the point where people would just give up rather than run the risk. Because even if they got it right, you could still file a lawsuit and, yeah. and cost them a ton of money in trying to sort through all of this. And I can just see a judge looking at it and throwing his hands up in the air and saying, what are we doing here? Yeah, and there is a value to the idea of sort of maintaining the original. One thing I put into this, and I'm just going to, I'm going to end my at least you know, discussion of this, and I think it's a valuable thing. One of the things I always think is interesting, and I value you guys to do, one place where truly the original is preserved of a document is the United States Patent Office. Uh, patent filed documents, when filed, are preserved, mm -hmm. and they have to be preserved effectively forever in their original form. Um, and so it can be very interesting at times to go back and, for example, read very old patents. Which we do from time to time. Uh, which we do from time to time. Because it's amazing what you bump into, what you see, and both the way they're written. Now, some of them are written purposely kind of fun-wise and stuff like that. And there's lots of plenty of things. But just even the way things are described and discussed. The example of what I was involved with, I was working on a patent um, having to do with firearms. And particularly black powder firearms. And the thing that was cited against me um, is a piece of prior art was very old. And I joke about it because the first line of the abstract began with, in the war between the states. Which is an interesting thing to think about. Somebody writing... Was it not called the Civil War at the time? Yeah, well, to think about that, that's what the person's writing. They're writing this paragraph contemporaneously with... Yeah. This is recent history I individually remember. That's yeah. when they wrote this. And that's what he's saying. When this happened, this was the thing from it. Um, and, and, you know, that's an interesting thing. And I think about it even, you know, when I look at my own applications from a few years ago... You know, when I discussed with somebody an application I wrote, and it's the, yeah, it, it contemplates a mobile device because it talks about a Blackberry. Yeah. Or it talks about a Palm. Or it talks about an Apple Newton. <laughs> Newton, yes. <laughs> you know, and, and those kind of things sort of, it's very interesting to sort of see the way they, the, the things change as the text changes in the product of its time. And it's one area, because interesting that patents are not covered by copyright and cannot be covered by copyright by statute, um, the physical text of them you actually can see the preservation of old 
text exactly yeah. as it is. So it's one of those where if you want to take any sort of trip back in time, you know, go and look at a patent from, you know, the uh, early 1800s, uh, you know, and read it and, and see how people wrote and just how they describe things and what they talk about and things like that, particularly in the background sections, because a lot of times that goes into history. Yeah, that, that is good stuff. Uh, also, unrelated note, if you register a copyright, you are required to make a deposit of a copy of the work that, so that we know what it was. I don't know how good the copyright is at maintaining those and archiving those, particularly for copies of films and things like that. Obviously, now with digital technology, it's probably a little more stable, but the Copyright Office is notoriously underfunded uh, because it is not part of the executive branch. It's a branch or it's a part of the Library of Congress. Congress which is a part of the legislative branch, and Congress, and editorialized here, likes to pay themselves more than pay the bills. <laughs> so uh, it, it is underfunded all the time and, uh, and constantly struggling to kind of keep up. Um, and their computers so, are from the 1970s. Yeah, it's, it's, it's an old system that, uh, that everybody agrees should be updated, but there's just not a lot of, uh, you know, it's, it's not a big hot-button electoral issue that you're going to get a lot of people to the booths over, so it doesn't get much attention except from uh, people like us. So there is a requirement to make those deposits, but there is no requirement to file for a copyright registration in the first place, and a relatively small percentage of copyrights are pursued. So although, in theory, the Library of Congress has a large archive, the Copyright Office has an archive, it is very very porous. Yeah, and the Library of Congress is, and again, this may be a good place to end on our discussion of this public domain day, apparently is going to make available a number of the sound recordings, and potentially all of the sound recordings it has, which awesome. are now in the public domain. Um, you know, there's been discussion of the idea of trying to make these things publicly available. The great thing about it is, is if a single copy gets out, you will likely Everybody have people who now purposely wish to preserve it individually. Yep. You can potentially get into an open source type of you know scenario with this. Um, that has that has a huge amount of potential where you know things can potentially be preserved because of individuals wanting to preserve them. All right, I think that's a good place to end. So uh, coming up next, we are going to do an episode, uh, probably long overdue, on uh, NFTs. Kirk and I are both <laughs> kind of into that, and uh, I really want to do an episode on NFTs because I have to admit I find NFTs to be one of the most interesting developments. In copyright and in law. Yes. Not so much the technology. I find the technology actually very uninteresting. But I think that the legal ramifications, which are not being discussed yet, are fascinating. And yeah, there's, there's, a lot, there's a lot of assumptions people are making about what it means to buy or sell an NFT that have no basis in law or fact. Yeah. So we're going to talk about that. And then uh, we also have an email that's been sitting in our box for about probably two or three years now. Uh, <laughs> sorry. Sorry. Uh, one of our listeners in India uh, had asked us questions about, well, kind of uh, two questions. One, why is it that IP institutions look so similar across different countries with very different cultures and histories? We're going to tackle that. Uh, and that's also a good chance to kind of talk about, uh, sort of go back and do an overview and review of what our IP institutions are. It's something we've not really done in a long time. And some general principles behind yeah. them. Yeah, and that will also uh, tie back to some things going on in Mexico right now with an attempt to provide uh, a very unique and interesting form of IP protection for, um, I guess, a native slash aboriginal um, IP, uh, the, the culture of the, the Mesoamerican people, uh, who owns it, who can license it, and can just anybody use it and then profit off of it. Um, that, you know, it seems like, well, why not? It's all public domain, right? Well, it's it's more complicated, and Mexico <laughs> just made it more complicated. So. Well, and then it, the thing is, it's, it, it's more complicated, and now we're actually recognizing the complication yes, as opposed to the making it has always complicated. been complicated uh, it's just you know there was an empire and they kind of called the shots so, yeah. uh, so anyway we're going to talk about that too um, we'll try to avoid political stuff but you know talking about some of the history is probably unavoidable there so if that kind of thing annoys you you might want to skip that one but I think it'll be a fun interesting conversation so anyway that's all for today we'll see you next time Forum Play Us Out
The views expressed by the participants of this program are their own and do not represent the views of, nor are they endorsed by Lewis Rice LLC, its officers, directors, employees, agents, representatives, shareholders, and subsidiaries. None of the content should be considered legal advice. As always, consult a lawyer. This podcast was produced and recorded in St. Louis, Missouri. 